Olivia Bastian. And I'm Aubrey Calvin. And this is Southern Queries. Exploring all things LGBTQ in the South. Well, we did indeed miss another intro for an episode. So here I am with my flimsy intro to this episode. Um, I did want to note that Aubrey and I did take a very impromptu vacation and just didn't have any new uploads. We had a lot going on. Um, We also noticed that our episodes dropped from Spotify and we're trying to figure out what happened there. So here we are with the last of our Queerly I Do series and we are back with our regular programming. Enjoy the show. So I am here with Professor Mary Bernstein of the University of Connecticut, and she is an expert on all things. She's an expert about the LGBTQ social movements, specifically related to same-sex marriage, and she is a professor in the sociology department. So how are you doing? Welcome Welcome to being here. Thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure. Okay. I, I guess the first question I want to ask is, because you've been studying this for a long time, like you've been, your expertise goes back for, to the early 2000s, late 90s with this issue, right? Why were some activists against the push for same-sex marriage? So before 2015, when the Supreme Court did the case and made same-sex marriage legal across the country, why was there pushback against that strategy or against same-sex marriage mm-hmm. from within the community? Yeah, I think, yeah, I think, I think it's really important to sort of to revisit that history. So there was a lot of fear about what would happen um, should marriage equality um, be allowed and also about what would happen to the community in terms of pushing for marriage equality. And so I think the critique comes from a number of places. So one place are the sort of what I call the gay liberationist and the queer critique. And both movements, both gay liberation, which really dates from the late 60s and early 70s, as well as the more contemporary queer movement from maybe the late 80s on, um, were really, really saw LGBTQ activism as about challenging dominant cultural norms about gender, about gender identity, about relationship forms. And so the idea was that instead of being kind of shackled to these dominant societal norms, that queer people broadly should try to create new kinds of relationships, new forms of more egalitarian relationships, different kinds of intimacy. So that was one strand of critique. The second strand of critique really came out of um, feminist critiques of marriage as an institution. And the idea there is that marriage has historically been a patriarchal institution that benefits men, that disadvantages women. And there's a whole array of reasons why that's the case in terms of a division of labor between spouses. In ter- I mean, and we can go back, we, you know, I don't want to take us back too far historically, but, you know, women once had literally no legal personhood upon marriage, no right to own property, really no right to her own body. So, um, so there's a long patriarchal history of marriage. And so the feminist critique said, well, why would we want to enter into an institution that is so broken? Um, And then I think there was a real kind of symbolic fear And this was the fear that the movement itself was going to result in dividing gay people into what people have called like the good gays and the bad gays. 
right? And so the good gays would be the kind of, um, you know, the gay or lesbian version of Ozzy and Harriet, right? A kind of typically white middle-class family um, behind the white picket fence and that they would be considered normal and good. And then everyone else who wasn't living that same life would be considered bad and worse. And so the fear was that they were going to, you know, some people were going to enter into what Gail Rubin called the charm circle and everyone else was going to be left behind. So that was one part of it was this idea yeah, that I, you're going to marginalize people who are already marginalized. Um, and then I think yeah, there I was also, I was looking at, um, yeah, go, go ahead. <laughs> no, go ahead. No, I was going to just say, uh, no, I'm sorry. I, I like a lot of pop culture. I teach I'm a professor of government at community college. And I use a lot of pop culture. And I think I always compare it to the Cam and Mitchell from Modern Family, like very mm -hmm. much charmed life, very middle to upper class. And, you know, eventually they got married, but it's kind of like that type of presentation of marriage. That's what mm -hmm. people were fearful of compared to maybe something a little bit more radical. Right. Right. Absolutely. And that, and that if you choose, you know, say Cam and Mitchell had chosen not to be married, right. Would their relationship have been lesser than because they decided not to marry? Um, you know, so, I mean, I think those are really important and, you know, and what about, you know, what about single people, single people who choose to have children outside of, you know, outside of a relationship, whether it's, um, with a person, uh, you know, regardless of the sex of the person, you know, that they would have a relationship with. Uh, what about people who are polyamorous? Would those families be subject to even more discrimination and opprobrium than they already are subject to, right? And so there is this real fear that we're, you know, that we're going to be dividing people up. And I think the, you know, and so there's this idea that this is really kind of the the death knell of queer culture, right? Of coming up with new and more innovative ways of living. And why would we want access to this most conservative um, of institutions? And also with this idea that it's two people, you know, it's meant to be monogamous um, and so forth. So I think there was really this symbolic fear. Other people were also opposed to it. And I think they were opposed to it for the reason that what are the benefits of marriage, right? Who would benefit more, who would benefit less, right? And so marriage historically has been a kind of a, you know, a, um, an institution that has been predominantly white, middle-class. It's, um, and the idea is it's gonna marginalize people who are poor, it's gonna marginalize queers of color. Um, and so a lot of the benefits of marriage are, or have historically been financial. You have the right to inherit, um, marriage affects custody issues. Um, if you are lucky enough to have a job that has health insurance, you can put your spouse on your health insurance plan, right? But who's lucky enough to have those kinds of health insurance plans? Well, people who are middle class, upper middle class. Um, and so that by definition leaves a lot of people out of some of those benefits, right? And we know that with racial oppression, disproportionately black and brown people are more likely to be um, in poverty or less likely to have jobs that have those kinds of benefits. And so therefore less likely to benefit from um, same-sex marriage. Now, interestingly, of course, a lot of the focus was on health insurance. And, um, and now with the Affordable Care Act, in theory, I'm going to say in theory here because we know that the Affordable Care Act has been under siege. That is for the right word. 
a long time, but in theory, people can get covered even if their jobs don't cover them. And we need to go a lot further in that, but that's another, that's another issue. Um, so, and then finally, two other issues. So one is that other people say, well, this is not the most important. Whether or not you can get married or not getting mar get married is not the most important issue facing um, the community. Um, there are issues of violence, particularly against transgender people, particularly against transgender women of color, um, homelessness among LGBTQ youth, uh, throwaways, runaways, um, healthcare issues, um, adoption, HIV and AIDS, immigration, racism um, within the um, LGBTQ community, within the broader um, country, right? So police violence. So all of these, right? People said those are much more pressing issues. So why are we focusing on marriage, which might help the, you know, just the privileged few? And I think there was another fear, which is what kind of impact is same-sex marriage going to have on communities and, on, and politics? In other words, there was a real fear that once we get same-sex marriage, then everyone's going to just get married, you know, go buy their, you know, their house with the picket fence in the suburbs, and they're not going to care about anything else because now they're able to get married. And so they're going to be depoliticized and sort of privatized. Some people call this the but for gays, right? So but for being gay, you know, you, you know your life is just like anyone else. Um, and so I think for many, it's a fear of being in what some people have called a post-gay society, right? That's going to mark the end of the LGBTQ community and identity. And so what, ha you know, so what happens? So I think all of the, you know, the, the, this fear that, you know, somehow the, you know, LGBTQ institutions are going to disappear and marriage is kind of the harbinger of the end of queer culture and queer politics and queer communities. I know I live in the suburbs and I'm a suburban kid slash Air Force brat. So like even before I came out as trans and before I came out as queer, my life has always been the suburbs or Air Force bases. And I can't, I will say trying to find queer community is hard and I have to drive to it. And where I live in Fort Worth, we don't really have a gathering place or a neighborhood or a neighborhood. We have to go to Dallas County, which is a 45 minute drive. If there's, if you catch the right amount of traffic. So just feeling that sense of community, it's hard out here. Like I know on my neighborhood, my, my, my neighborhood's Facebook group, there's like one lesbian couple here as well. I still haven't met them. <laughs> And I feel I, bad, I, but it's like, how do you yourself? You knock on the door. Hi, I heard, see you're a lesbian. So am I. It's like, how do you do that? How do you build that community? <laughs> right. And, and, and it's really hard. I mean, I hear you. I mean, when I'm, when I moved to Connecticut and I've been here now for 20 years, um, you know, it, I mean, Connecticut's been, a, you know, very, you know, very much of a more accepting state and they've usually been on the you know, ahead of the curve in terms of LGBTQ rights, including same-sex marriage. And, you know, so finding community when I first moved here was really, was really a challenge. And it's almost like, you know, you have to kind of find the social community and there, you know, there aren't, there really aren't the, you know, the strong bars and 
um, bookstores and it's just it just doesn't exist. But I think that these institutions were on the decline even before same-sex marriage. And I think that in part, yeah. you know, is the trade-off, right? The trade-off between acceptance and and less discrimination and you know, and the need for the, those institutions. Um, although I, and I, and I, and it's interesting. I mean, I see a difference between, you know, maybe my generation and say my kids' generation. Um, you know, my kid, my kids have, have, you know, they have fr friends who are gay and friends who are transgender and, um, and, you know, they're out in varying degrees, but it's, it's, it's such a, it's such a different world than it, than it used to be. And that's got, pro, you know, that's got pros and it's got cons. Um, I also think that the internet has really changed things. You know, there's so many more online communities, you know, when, when you want to meet somebody, if you're single and you want to date, where do you go? Well, you go online, right? You don't go, you know, even if there were a bar, you know, there's a certain point, you know, if you're old enough, you know, are you really going to meet somebody in a bar? Probably not. Uh, you know, so you go yeah. online. So I think that's really changed. But I do think for many people who really had, you know, because I mean, I lived in New York City all, you know, through after college and through grad school. And I have to say, like, I miss the strong sense of community there. And I have my friends and my, you know, but it, it's really different. And I think if you're politically active, that can also provide another sense of community. But, um, you know, it is sort of the trade off. And I think people fear that being, you know, being gay or lesbian is going to become like, you know, like for Irish people who once a year they might go to the St. Patty's parade with their sign, but the rest of the year it's kind of not not a central part of who they are. No, I get that. I I know my daughter, even because you know, eleven year old preteen snark. She said, "Oh, are you doing another gay thing?" enough with the gay stuff it's so normalized to her she's like oh another gay interview i'm like yes this is me trying to find community and i don't think she understands that because you know i'm such an introvert she's such an introvert it's not natural we don't really look for people and want to be around a lot of people but i'm still trying to find my community which is why India and I started the podcast is that we met through the podcast Nancy and they we were trying to find community here in Fort Worth and you do want it, it is harder when you're married when you're in the suburbs and you know both confession books my wife and I we met online and India and her wife they met online <laughs> uh and I even met on an old website, pre-trans. We met pre-transition on eHarmony back when I was male presenting. So we didn't do the bar thing, you know? And I mm -hmm. think if it had not been for the apps, I wouldn't be married. And I know Indy and her wife wouldn't have been married right now. So it's this strange idea where you can find your other person, but do you lose your community? You know? With all the internet and everything, like you can find that you can find that love, but where's that larger sense, if you will, of that queer culture? Yeah, and and, and I think it's also tricky. I mean, it's interesting because my old neighborhood, um, there was an article in the Hartford Current. Apparently, we 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 learned that we lived on like the gayest block, <laughs> and we had a very high concentration. 
version of yeah. I, I don't know how they determine that, but um, sort of accidental. Um, you know, there you know there was a couple of gay male couples and a single gay man and another lesbian couple and us and um, you know, but it was interesting. It was still you know a little. It was, it was different, but I also think in some ways I, I don't know how much it has to do with also with age. You know, just getting older and work is more time consuming. And if you have kids, that's more time consuming. I mean, my, my daughters, my twins are 16. I know your, your, um, your daughter's a little younger, but she's 11. um, Yeah. 11. Yeah. Yeah. And one of my daughters told me the other day, sometimes people will question her and say, well, how, you know, how can you have two moms? And, you know, they're a little bit aggressive and she's what she says to them is she looks at them and she says, well, at least I know I'm wanted. That is savage. <laughs> I love that. See the see the kids today are so like are so protective of their families, I've noticed. Like they are so protective of this idea that this is their normal, you know. When my daughter was little and we would take her to the park and she would say, Oh yeah, I just have two moms, like it's no big deal. And anytime someone would question her question her on it, she would just walk away. Like, okay, I don't need you to validate my family for me. And she was saying these things at five and six. And I, I, it is interesting having to navigate more suburban, some, and especially in the South, conservative, suburbs typically equal conservative. And so we are navigating a lot of that idea of, you know, my daughter wants to be a serious dancer. So you have to find the right ballet company that is open and affirming, not necessarily religious. And most of the ballet companies or the dance studios are religious. Most of the private schools are religious, which is part of why we homeschool, because Texas doesn't have the great school systems Connecticut has. (laughs) So it's like, like, so there's this trying to navigate these communities that aren't built for you. So sometimes I wonder what the trade-off is between being married and having that larger community. Well, I, I'm uh, not sure that you actually, yeah, I don't know how much Go ahead. does marriage, is it really marriage though that gets in the way of the larger community or is it that, you know, that we're in places where we weren't before and that we're out about being in those places where in the past, we wouldn't have been out or visible. And I think if we want to think about change, you know, your daughter, my kids being on the playground and just talking about having two moms, you know, that, I mean, that really makes a difference. The mother of one, one of, um, when my kids were little, um, they were talking about having two moms, I don't know, maybe they were five or six, and one of their friends went home and he said to his mother, is it true that they have two moms? I'm mentioning my daughters and um, his mother said, yes, it is. And he looked at her and he said, well, that's not fair. How come I only have one mom? <laughs> we had that happen to us. <laughs> like we had like, that's not fair. I didn't know that was an option. <laughs> Which right, is right, right. though. It is, it's, it's, it's not necessarily marriage related. It's more the effects of the activism, you know, before 2015, in the 80s and the 90s, early 2000s, so much of the push was just to 
decriminalize us being who we are, decriminalize housing discrimination, decriminalize our private sexual lives and I know and getting proper funding and acknowledgement for the AIDS epidemic. So much of that push was to make it okay to live who and be who you are and then live wherever you are. Was marriage the next logical step that now that we can live anywhere and not be fired? Well, well, let me take that back because let me take that back because it's still it was still the case that we got marriage rights before we got employment protection nationwide. I know in some states you all have had both for years. But in Texas, the state legislature didn't give us either. So we got marriage rights before employment protection. And so I just, I don't think I'm asking the question right. Is, is it, maybe I'm just trying to figure out, is it harder for us to build a community now, maybe not because of marriage, but because of all the past successes in legalizing our lifestyle and cultural acceptance of us. Does that make sense? Yeah, I think so. Oh, and I think it, to make sense. <laughs> yeah, no, I think it's a kind of classic, you know, it's a classic debate. I mean, I think that, um, you know, there's uh, one comparable case might be thinking about American Jews who are, um, you know, the more the more liberal reform conservative, you know, not not orthodox or Hasidic who are much more likely to live in their own sort of more closed communities, you know, but this idea of, you know, if you if you assimilate, do you lose, you know, do you lose your culture? Do you lose what makes you unique? And I think that for LGBTQ people, you know, what what is it that makes us unique? Now, I personally don't actually think that same-sex marriage makes us lose our uniqueness. Right. I think that the fact that we are, you know, two women or two men or um, someone who might be transgender, right? However, people identify. Um, I think that, that that really challenges heteronormativity. And I think to the extent that that becomes more visible and not just more visible in, you know, a, a sort of closed, you know, Grant, like you say, Greenwich Village, right? Community where, um, but, but the fact that people are, are everywhere, right? The fact that, you know, you're in the suburbs in Texas and I'm in the suburbs in Connecticut and that other people are, you know, perhaps they're out in more rural areas, right? I mean, I think that really heightens the, heightens the visibility. I think that until we get rid of heteronormativity and gender inequality, you know, there will still continue to be, you know, something that's really fundamentally challenging to dominant social norms about being in a same-sex relationship. And I think that that, uh, or a same-gender relationship. So I think that that really, that, that still maintains a kind of um, challenging dominant norms. Yeah, and But I think that, um, but I do think it's tricky, right? Because what, you know, what is it that you know, what is it that makes any kind of community unique and creative? And um, so I don't, I don't think that goes away because we have you know, access to a legal contract, which is really what the, what marriage is. Um, I mean, I'm not saying that it's not, oh, yes. you know, what of it, but you know, civil marriage, it's a legal contract. It gives you access to certain legal rights, privileges, responsibilities, 
right? You, you may also have a religious marriage, right? It depends, you know, or you may, you know, you like a good friend of mine who was like one of my most like anti-gay marriage friends, he got married, he got married to his partner because he didn't want him, he didn't want him to, um, um, as he said, go on the exchanges um, in other, for health insurance, he, you know, because he had a good paying job. I want to make sure that his partner also had access to health insurance. So they went down to City Hall um, and their um, friend and witness was actually a crossing guard. They had their, their, their wedding photos, the two of them, and then these buff gay guys, you know, in their jeans and their T-shirts and with the crossing guard, with his crossing guard sash across his chest in between them. And that's their marriage photo. They didn't have any ceremony or anything, you know, so for them, I mean, other people, of course, you know, it's really about getting your family and your friends and everyone to kind of, you know, recognize and support your relationship. I think you're right because when you when we and I this is part of why I wanted to talk to you is because your writing gets this idea that you get it that it's not just marriage as an institution it's marriage while also trying to combat a society that is based on heteronormativity based on patriarchy based on there's still that assumption for even of an opposite sex married couple that if a kid gets in trouble at school or gets sick, they're going to call the mom before they call the dad, even if the dad is number one on the call list for the emergency. It's still a society that assumes male breadwinners and assumes patriarchy and it's still a society where a lot of our quote-unquote rights are based on capitalism like it's still a society where you have to get married like your friends for health insurance and what should health insurance even have to do with marriage like, why should those two even be connected in society? So I think it's an intersection of, mm-hmm. you know, us affirming our identity and our legal right to exist in a society that not only says we don't exist and that we shouldn't exist, but a society that is hyper-capitalistic and hyper-traditional norms within the confines of capitalism it's a lot to unpack. It's, it's a, it's a lot. <laughs> yeah, it really, it really is. And I think you raise a lot of really important issues. I mean, so, I mean, I think, you know, one of the issues I think with the, you know, sort of the privatized nuclear family is, you know, this idea that it fits into a kind of a broader neoliberal economic agenda, right. Which is that, um, mm-hmm caretaking and financial responsibility should be done within the family, right? That there shouldn't, you know, that there's no need for public institutions, say, to pick up the cost of care. You know, so if, if a child or say, say you're a, an elderly parent becomes ill, then it becomes the responsibility of the private nuclear family to take care of that person, as opposed to having, say, a broader social safety net that would actually pay to help. And you know, so I think, you know, and, and, but that's not just about, you know, same-sex marriage. That's about, you know, that's about the organization that's, of our society and, you know, the lack of, you know. how we chose to build this country. Yeah. 
Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, I, and, you know, I, I get that too. I live, my mother-in-law, we bought a house with her. Like we are a multi-generational household. So this household has my mother-in-law, my wife and I, and my daughter, our daughter, my daughter, our daughter. <laughs> so mm-hmm. we did have to go back to that idea of multiple generations under one roof, because economically speaking, our society is not really built for that nuclear family on its own. I think that's a, that's a new idea that's been thrust upon us. And historically speaking, mm-hmm. that hasn't been the case. It's a mid, it's a 20th century idea, but yeah. that's not how we were in the 19th or 18th century. Yeah. And I think along with that, I actually think that there are a lot of people who really crave community. You know, and and that multi generational families, I I think in many ways are you know making a comeback. Um, mm-hmm. You know, there's a sh- you know ch- you know shared childcare, and sh- you know just sharing sharing the meal, sharing the the costs and the the responsibility as well as the fun of um, of more people. So I, you know, so I think that uh, I mean depending on the people, of course, but <laughs> um, but I mean in theory. Of <laughs> You know, but in theory, you know, yeah, (laughs) we've been, um, we've, you know, we've been isolated. And I think that, you know, is it, is it, is that the best model or the only model? And I think that gets back to the kind of, I think the fear of, um, you know, the sort of, you know, the queer critique of marriage or the gay liberation critique of marriage that, you know, somehow we'll be stuck in these narrow, you know, the narrow confines of, of, what family looks like, but I think that families like, like your own multi-generational, you know, look really different. And I think that allowing for that and providing different models for that, I think is really, is really important. I think so too. I think so too. Uh, last question. And then I want to let you go. Cause I do want to be respectful of your time. If because a lot of our listeners are a little bit younger. Like, I'm right. I'm a Gen Xer, barely. Like, I turned 40 in a couple of weeks. And my co-host is a millennial. And we know a lot of our listeners are millennial or skewing Gen Z. What is it that they should know about the LGBT movement that existed before 2015? What were... Or is, are there books they should read or are there names or influential writers besides yourself that we can direct them to so that they can understand the full history? I know that question wasn't on the list, but you answered all the questions on the list in like mm-hmm. one. So, <laughs> <laughs> um, well, I, I, I think it's really important to, you know, to know the history. And I think that, um, I think it's also important not to look back and say, oh, that was like the dark ages of gay life, because it really, you know, when I talk to people, and I'm older than you are, um, you know, but when I talk to people who are older than I am, you know, people who were, you know, who were living, you know, who who were gay, and they were of age in the 50s and the 60s, and then, um, you know, before gay liberation, Right. You know, so there was, you know, there was the closet and but at the same time, there was a very vibrant world within that within that closet. And it was a world of, um, 
gestures and symbols and ways of recognizing each other and places to go, you know, like Cherry Grove on Fire Island or Provincetown. Um, you know, there, you know, there was a way, you know, there were the, the balls in Harlem, in New York City. You know, there were all, con you know, there was a vibrant, vibrant um, queer life that has been going on for a very long time. And so I think first it's a mistake to think about, you know, the sort of dark ages. Now that doesn't mean there weren't terrible things going on and, you know, people being uh, assaulted because they were um, gay or lesbian or arrested or fired, um, all, all of which I think continues to happen today. Um, but at least today we have much more recourse depending depending to some extent on who you are but in theory there's more recourse than there was then so not to not to deny like the terrible things and um you know so-called um you know like putting people putting gay people in mental institutions for example and that homosexual but i mean so to keep in mind both the vibrancy of gay life but also you know the reality of how bad things were because i think that there's a tendency of for younger generations to have no idea what their elders went through and and how much work it was yeah. to get to are now right you know to have homosexuality not be considered a mental disorder by the american um, psychological association in its diagnostic and statistical manual you know that that's huge we haven't gotten there yet with um gender identity but that's coming i think um and, you know, so all of these changes are, are really profound. You know, the fact that, you know, there are still religions that are hostile toward um, gay and lesbian people, but there are also so many that are open and affirming and that were conducting um, same-sex marriages before the government would recognize those marriages. You know, so for people for whom, you know, religion matters, right, there's a, you know, there's a much greater um, community of accepting places to go than there once was. Um, People often don't know that um, uh, the sodomy statutes existed and those criminalized consensual sexual behavior between adults and often between adults, regardless of whether they were same sex or different sex. But even so, they were only applied for the most part, not entirely, but against same sex um, couples. And what that did, even though was it effectively criminalized or it was used to criminalize the status of being gay or lesbian. And that was the bedrock or the foundation of inequality. And so the fact that, you know, I can teach a sociology of gender class and have several students who are out in class and be out myself. I mean, I, you know, I could have been once upon a time fired for, you know, for being out in, a, in the classroom. Um, you know, the fact that I always have students who are, you know, who, who, you know, identify, you know, who, who, who are just, you know, feel perfectly comfortable to come out as lesbian or gay or non-binary or gender non-conforming or, you know, there's a whole other array that people take up and that we can have courses where you can actually read about, you know, gay and lesbian history. I mean, you know, that people take that for granted and it doesn't mean we're where we should be as a society at all. But I do think that we need to really think about what that history was. Um, I'll just do a little, you know, self, you know, I have, I have an article in the journal Social Science History, which gives, I think, a pretty good overview of the movement, you know, for, you know, 
past 50, 60 years. There's also like Steve Seidman's book, um, Beyond the Closet, I think is really important because it really talks about how the architecture of the closet affected gay life both before, you know, in earlier time and, and today. And, you know, and, and all of this change is uneven. You know, if, you know, I'm, I'm sure that being in Texas is really different than being in Connecticut um, in terms of experiences. Um, maybe, maybe not. Vegetarian food. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. It's harder for us to go. It's like it's hard to get vegetarian food, but <laughs> it is. That would make I mean, my that would make my but... vegan daughter very upset. <laughs> yeah, it's like like we have two vegan restaurants in a within a two mile period, and then that's a that's it. It's like it's hard because we're semi vegetarian. It's hard because <laughs> we don't have anywhere to eat. Yeah. Uh, Right. I could just talk to you forever. Mm-hmm. I think that's the problem with sociologists is that I could just talk. My best friend's a sociologist and I could just talk to y'all forever. And you always make me regret going into political science and not sticking and not making my sociology minor, like my major. So you always mm-hmm. make me regret my teaching choices because <laughs> uh, this has been so much fun talking to you. Thank you so much. This was such a juicy episode, and we sure hope you enjoyed listening to Dr. Mary Bernstein. We will probably do a little bit of recapping in our next episode, but mostly we'll um, have some awesome new things coming your way. So stay tuned and see you next time, folks. You can find more information about this episode and the show at our website, southernqueries.com. You can also find us on Facebook and Instagram by searching Southern Queries. Queries is with two E's. Until next time, thanks for listening. Some credits. Production. Your hosts, India and Aubrey. Audio mixing by Allison Holly. Story research, Aubrey Calvin. Editing, India Bastian. This is Southern Queries.